Deacon program. My goodness, thank you so much for being here, boys and girls. Tonight I do have a special treat for you. Mr. Marshall Masters is live and in the building. Now, let's not take too much time wasting time. Let's bring him right in. Marshall, is that you humming away? Yes. My goodness, what's up, Marshall? Well, working on my new book. Oh, yes. How's that going? Going pretty good. We're just a few days away from publishing Win-Win Survival Communities, Prepare for Cooperation, Not Confrontation. And um, we're, uh, it's going to be a very sizable book, about 130,000 words. Oh, my. That's a long wow. book. Yeah, that's indeed, Mike. You're right. But it is a complete plan. And uh, what I did is my book is <clears throat> about surviving with others. Based on, with win-win, there's safety in numbers. Me and mine prepping has its problems. But if you're in a large community of 100 to 150 people, there's a lot you can do. And so uh, and you're going to be in much better shape. And the whole point of a win-win is other people are planning to hit the wall. And that's traditional prepping. You hit the wall. Life as we know it ceases to exist. So then you go into an altered state afterwards of survival and after you've hit the wall. And so there's no continuity of life. There is a huge disruption. And with a win-win, it's about instead of hitting walls, it's hitting speed bumps, just going over speed bumps. Uh, you have a community that's designed to remain functional during these disasters, whether it's Tsunamis, hurricanes, earthquakes, floods, whatever it is, it's an all-hazards facility. So no matter what's happening above ground, it's all below ground, and it's producing tons of food every day, fresh food. And uh, that's the, the main basis of this is that you create uh, a, a system that you get through things. And uh, what I do is I'm saying instead of if you're just preparing for 
the end of life as we know it. I don't care whether you're using commercial bunkers or building your own or whatever you're going to do. But there's one thing bunker builders will never answer the question, and that is what happens afterward. Right. They never answer that. Now, I'm going to answer that question for you. You want to hear the answer? Sure, Marshall. Go ahead. Okay. Now, I've been doing this for many years, all right? And uh, I started actually working with folks uh, probably about 15 years ago and with planning and preparation. And I know what they do. And I know even the ones that are building million-dollar bunkers. One of the things I consistently see with people when they're prepping is they use consumer logic for their stockpiling. They go for bang for the buck. You see a lot of Kraft macaroni and stuff like that, Kraft mac and cheese. And over the years, I've always asked people, you know, have you tried living on that food for a couple of weeks to the exclusion of everything else? And, you know, in 15 years, nobody besides myself has ever tried that. I tried it. I had a year and a half reserve of food. I tried living on it for two weeks, made me sick as hell, and I threw all the damn stuff. I wouldn't even give it away. I, I just took, I oh, my God, a couple of thousand dollars. I mean, I just threw it in the dumpster. Oh, no. Because it's like when you start living on pure GMO and processed food, right. all the salt and all the stuff, next thing you know, you can't poop, you can't think, <laughs> you can't do half anything. <laughs> I don't care if you got a $3,000 assault rifle. If you got the trots, baby, you're going to have a hard time keeping, the, you know, somebody in the crosshairs. Okay. Right. <laughs> Try sit there and defend yourself against a whole bunch of screaming zombies coming at you, and you're doing the poo-poo dance, all right? No, you know, you're going to get sick. You're going to fail, all right? But here's the worst part of it is that everybody underestimates the food, and so they're going to wind up coming up to the surface sooner than they anticipated. Guess what? We're a cannibalistic society. We're a species, Okay, during World War II, the last major outbreak of cannibalism in a first world nation was in Russia during the siege, 900 day siege of Leningrad. And the Germans just totally locked it up, starved a million people to death. It was terrible, terrible. And there was rampant cannibalism, but the authorities really didn't do much about it. And the reason why was the cannibals were smart enough, just, they just, Wait for somebody to drop dead on the street and pick them up while they're still warm and, you know, light the fire. Okay, so they were picking up cadavers. They weren't killing people. That was the last time we had that. So if you come up out of your bunker and you're all healthy and, you know, you're going to be a stranger in a strange land. And guess what? Your healthy body, someone's going to smell it a half a mile away or maybe even longer. And if they get to you before you know it. And you're going to die badly and very slowly. And so this is one of the things that they don't tell you when they're selling you bunkers and all kinds of stuff is that you're you're not going to estimate properly. I find people underestimate. They go way too heavy on carbohydrates and simple sugars. Uh, protein by half, they're off by half. I mean, if you're really going to do it, you're going to do it smart. Pure organic, no GMO, no processed foods. Yeah, organic is not as tasty. So get some uh, hot sauce, okay? And uh, it'll work. But you get if you get organic, all organic, you're you're not going to have the poo poo dance. The poo poo dance. 
and the cuckoo dance too. I like that. And, and so you're not going to be dancing. You're going to be surviving. And those are things to do. Now, I looked at all of this and I'm going, everything we know is wrong. Everything we know is wrong. We're preparing for the end of this civilization. That's wrong. What I do with my book, Win-Win, is I say, let's prepare for the beginning of the next civilization. Let's provide a clean slate for humanity, pick up the pieces and move forward again. And so my strategy is to say, instead of preparing for the end of the world, and I, I mean, think about it. No wonder people don't get excited about it. What are your options? You're going to go into a dead box in the ground, eat dead food, and wonder if you're going to die when you come up, right? That's charming. So on the other hand, if you're in a community of 150 people and you're not living on dead food, you're growing live food, you're living in an all-hazards facilities, beautiful underground domes where you're safe and everybody can participate, you're surrounded by veterans and people who know how to set up a community and defend it. And so there's a, it's just a different way of thinking. And we have to get away from this end of life as we know it cycle stuff. Because it's all a dead end. Yeah, it's very difficult. It's all a dead end. It's very yeah, difficult so what I'm saying is, what you do that. is, instead of preparing for the end of life, prepare to colonize other worlds. Now, this may sound crazy. I got a chapter in the book that says, feed 1,000 Martians. Like, what the heck that? You know, people, Marshall, what the heck does that got to do <laughs> with surviving here on Earth? Okay, what does that got to do? <laughs> I hear that. All the self-righteous. <laughs> And I go, you know what? If you're growing underground and you're producing, guess what? The technology differences between doing it here in an all-hazard facility and actually building something like that on planet Mars, the technology differences are between 15 to 20 percent. That's all. The rest of it is going to be the rest of it. It's going to be the same. And so what I'm saying in the book is you, what you do is you prepare to be space pioneers. Because pioneering requires survival. If you're going to colonize, you have to survive. And if you're going to survive, you're going to have to colonize. Because that's what, you know, that's what the experts are telling us. We got to get off planet. We got to go find new worlds. And that's where everything's going right now. Now, Trump said, hey, we're going to Mars. He threw down the gauntlet. And what? Go ahead. I was just going to say, uh, Marshall, have you been enjoying the end times? No. <laughs> the current in times. No, I don't want any of this to happen. Really? I'm not in, you know, it's like there, there's nothing to enjoy. It's just more sense of mission to try and help the ones that I can, folks that I want to help themselves. And um, so the part that I enjoy is the camaraderie that I have with a lot of wonderful people who share the mission. But the mission itself is... Let's be honest, if you, you know, it, it's a difficult mission. You know, it'd be a whole lot easier if I had a rotary club or something. <laughs> sure. I have a question for Marshall, if it's all right. Jump in sure. there. Um, Marshall, are you a prepper yourself? I do. I mean, in terms of prepping and st stockpiling some supplies and stuff like that, I do what I need to do. I, I'm a single man, so I'm taking care of myself. Um, the I'm really more focused right now on getting this done and getting one of these communities built. So I do prep. I prep continuously. And, and I want to say about that question, because here's a, a philosophical difference. 
When you say prepping, you tell me, are you talking about a person, place, thing, or time, or are you talking about a state of mind? Uh, well, for me, the definition of prepping means preparing for an apocalyptic event or some sort of a chaotic event. I mean, I even tried it back around 10 years ago when uh, Hussein Obama was, was president. I lived closer to New York City, and I seriously thought there was going to be a dirty bomb that was going to go off. And so I started buying a lot of canned goods and stocking up on, on ammunition and so on and so forth. So to me, when you say prepping, it's preparing for a chaotic event. By the way, I didn't do it very well either. <laughs> uh, well, you know, it's a struggle for everybody, okay? Now, the thing about prepping is if you're preparing for a specific disaster – Something that's going to happen. That's when, when people get into prepping, they're going, what's my causality? Am I preparing against tornadoes or floods or this and that, but not this or whatever? And so they tend to select on causalities because that limits the number of things that you have to do. I take what's called an all hazards approach. Now, in my book, I've spent five years researching this book. I have crisscrossed the country. I have gone looking at land specifically for communities, sizable properties of land. I mean, getting out there, meeting the realtors, meeting people, getting out local folks, and uh, going all the way back and forth across the country. And of course, you know, that's the joys of air airport food. And what I have seen over the years that I was looking is there are some things, like, for example, when you talk about preppers, to them, the place to go, their mecca, if you will, is northwest Montana up there around Eureka and Whitefish, okay? And I went out and actually looked at that area. No way I'd go there. No way. No way. And I explained why in the book. There are other areas to go to that are a lot more intelligent. And you get into rural areas, that's a lot. But the thing about prepping is it you're forcing yourself to isolate. You want to, I'm going to be up in the hill and leave me alone and ain't going to happen. Somebody knows you're there. They're going to take a run at you. And so if you're in a community of 100 to 150 people, you are producing food. By the way, you're going to have enough warm bodies that if somebody wants to do something, they're going to be looking down a lot of rifle barrels and they'll say, let's just go get one of those me and mine preppers in a little bunker somewhere. And they'll go for a softer target. And that's the whole point of it. It's you're, you're coming together and we're doing things that have made us successful in the first place. You know, think about the leaders of this. The leaders of these communities, to me, need to be coming from business. They need to be somebody who knows what it's like to meet a payroll. Once you know what it's like to meet a payroll, that is a, you know, that's a game changer for you. That's the kind of expertise and background you want in somebody who's going to lead a community. And they need to interact. They need to build alliances instead of isolating yourself. In my book, I'm saying go support your local sheriff, work with them. You know, also as part of crisscrossing the country, I participated, I was belonged to two programs through the federal government, FEMA, with uh, CERT, Community Emergency Response Teams, and ARIES, Amateur Radio Emergency Service. And that I did through Homeland Security and ARRL. Now, I'm very familiar because I have trained in the very same facilities 
that the governments operate. They're emergency operations centers. That's where I trained. And I have hundreds of hours of classroom training. And I understand how this works. And there's a tremendous amount of fabulous expertise, which I have pulled from that base of training. And I've also included that in the book because first responders use something called the incident command system. And this is a brilliant way to organize a response to any kind of situations. Nice thing about it for a community is it's you don't have empire building with it because with incident command system, the best person for the job does the job when the job comes to be done. And so the leadership role is constantly changing. It's musical chair. And that is a huge, huge advantage of this. And so you're pulling together with like-minded others. You are becoming a light of hope, a solution to the community. Now, what I'm saying in the book is instead of living on dead food, all right, you're producing live food, but you're just not producing what you need. You are producing to the family farm standard of you got to grow 10 times more than the farm needs to exist to be economically viable. So my business model for win-win is you are growing food. You're feeding a thousand people a day or more, which means you have to produce tons of fresh food. But not only is it fresh food, when we farm today, if you look at how we farm truck farming, yeah, you just see, you know, for miles, the same thing, wheat, real seed, corn, these vast expanses of monocrops. But guess what? If you got to survive and all you got to plant it in the field is asparagus and lettuce, that's going to be pretty thin, okay? You're right. The whole point of it is that with a win-win community, you don't grow food like we do today, which is we grow to market. A little bit of one of that, one of that, one of this other thing, boom, go out, and guess what? Whatever the farmer doesn't grow for themselves, they go to the store and buy. You can't do this as a survival and pioneering community. You grow a full recipe. I mean, a full diet based on recipes. So in the book, I say there's two diets you want to do. Because remember, you're surviving and you're colonizing. So one diet is for survival. It's based on cast iron cooking recipes from American pioneers from the 18th and 19th century. Thousands of them available in the public domain. Then the other one is going to be the space diet. Now, that's more centered around the environmental set points of the International Space Station, which is follows along with what we would call a Mediterranean climate. And so for the space diet, the food is not as heavy as the survival diet. It's more flavorful, more varied. Yeah, you know, kind of like, what do we want tonight, Greek or Italian? And uh, so the community is actually going and collecting the recipes that it wants to grow. And you grow, you grow it. And then you process it and you cook it yourself and you make your own supplies. And then, you know, the church then, if it's producing 10 times what it needs and it can process that, you're not in the grow to market where you're out there competing with truck farmers. You are now in the, in the emergency supply business. Very lucrative right now. Very good. So the communities will be doing highly mineral-rich food, uh, organic, no GMO. So there's ways for these communities to support themselves while times are good. But what happens when life does go sideways? Well, I mean, you know, life is sideways now, Marshall. I mean, 
everyone yeah. everyone has coronavirus and you want to have everyone join a community. I don't know if that's going to be working out so good right now. Well, if you're in a community, a community, a survival community is automatically isolated. Corona free. And then. everyone is breathing air through NBR filters. NBR stands for nuclear biological or excuse me, NBC, nuclear biological and chemical. So if you're in a community, you're already isolated from bugs and whatever else that's going on. Plus, you are already in an environment where you're designed to handle these things. So with something like a coronavirus or any plague, this is exactly where you want to be. This is exactly where you want to be. And because, you know, you can, everything you do, you are a completely self-sustained community. If there's a plague, when do you get sick? It's when there's no food in the cupboard. You got to go get medicine. You got to go outside your isolation to get what you need. But if you're in a community that's self-sufficient, you don't have to go. And whatever you need, you tell UPS to leave out the box. You know? Right. So there's there, there are the practical aspects to it. And uh, we're just – see, the thing is people – I'm going to tell you this, the, the, the basic truth of people. The basic truth is everybody wants to live. Everybody wants to live. You have the will to survive. And that is the truth of it. Everybody wants to live, and they want it easy. Of course, yeah. Okay. Surviving is a gritty, hard, difficult business, and it requires a state of mind. If you're a consumer, you can say, fine, I'm going to buy something to prepare for this extingency. I'm going to buy something for that. So it's about person, place, thing, or time, which is ridiculous. There's only one way to be in preparedness. State of mind. You you think as a survivor, and because you never know, you could go out and stockpile. You could have everything you want, and guess what? When the guacamole hits the fan, you're a hundred miles away at grandma's house, and so no problem. You got the Humvee. You get in there and you make it all the way back. You forgot to refuel, but. Just as you pull in the drive, and the truck dies, no problem. You got a bunker out in the backyard. But Marshall, what to. if what if Grandma no has the coronavirus? What about the coronavirus? What what if what if Grandma has the coronavirus? Do we bring her with us, or do Are we just you? no leave well, her die? You, you shouldn't be at Grandma's in the first place. All right, so <laughs> Mike. First off, if Grandma has if Grandma has symptoms. And she says, come on, you know, that's not terribly smart for grandma. Nope. And if you do get there, you don't know. But And, and it's these what ifs. The it's many these, what ifs, right. These little what ifs and these little what ifs are what comes from thinking of survival as person, place, thing, or type. That's consumer thinking. That's how we think as consumers. Person, place, thing, or type. All right. We need something that ties to a cash transaction. Right. A state of mind doesn't tie to a cash transaction. Now, state of mind is you have before you've gone to grandmother's, you're well aware. Your situational awareness is strong. You're following the news. You know what you're doing. All right. And you take calculated risks. There's no way to avoid risk. What you got to do is mitigate the risk. All right. Now, when you look at people who are building million-dollar bunkers, 
Oh, yes. What amazes, amazes me about people are doing million-dollar bunkers is their solution forgets what made them successful people in the first place. What made them successful? Why could they afford a million-dollar bunker? Because one of the first things you do is you surround yourself with good people who protect your interests. And Marshall, by the way, I'm sorry to cut you off, but in your last book, Radio Free Earth, there was a lot of focus on being prepared, and it may have been for yep. a completely different purpose, but the message of self-reliance is also presented heavily, Marshall. Yes, and so you have to – it's about thinking on your feet. You never know what you're when, – when a situation arises, you never know what you're going to have on hand. But if you have a state of mind, you can do three things. If you are in a survival state of mind, you're able to do three things. One, quickly assess your situation. Two, formulate a plan. Three, you will have the confidence to take action on that plan, even if you know it's not the very best. All right. That's what a state of mind gives you. If you don't have that state of mind, then you're going to get lost in a bunch of consumer granularities and you're probably not going to make the best possible decision. So you're thinking, you go into a situation, you look, you observe. Tell me something. When you go into a room, Michael, are you looking to see how many entrances and exits are in that room? Not normally. Yeah, not normally. That's right. If you if you think, if you have a survival state of mind, you just do that automatically. Can you I ask you a question, Marshall? Situation. Yep. Do you have any military background? Yeah. So you served? Uh, uh, I was a medic. And oh, okay. A Oh, nice. Army. And, um, you know, that's the reason why in the book, uh, I say in the community, you need a third of your community or more needs to be veterans. And there's the obvious advantage veterans are, uh, <laughs> the government spends millions to train them so they can operate millions of dollars worth of equipment and then they throw them away. And this is in and your new book though, right? Win-win survival communities. That's it. Okay. Yeah. This is in win-win. You want to go, you want to get the vets. You want to get, uh, you know, I talk about the kind of people that you want to recruit. You don't want everybody. You're not a, you know, if you have a survival community, you're not a government. You don't have to take all who apply. You take the ones you want. You take the ones that you feel are like-minded and you got, you can, the key thing of it, and the reason why in my book I say that you want at least one-third of the community to be veterans and first responders, police, fire, sheriffs, paramedics. You want these people because, first off, they're already in a survival state of mind. They process things. They know how to process an incident and deal with it. But above all, they understand the importance of camaraderie for you know, police to hear officer down or in the military to hear troops in contact. Uh, when they hear that, their brothers and sisters are in deep kimchi and that's it. Everybody just hell-bent for the leather, go go get them out of there. Go help them. Go fight the bad guys. Pull around our own. And so camaraderie is important. Camaraderie is not about liking somebody. It's not about loving somebody. You know, You're, the next person over from you could snore like a pig and tell the worst jokes you've ever heard. But if he's, he's, in, a, he's in a spot and his life's at risk, you're just you're just going to go get them, period. You're going to take the risk and you're going to go get them. That's what camaraderie is about. And so people need to have this camaraderie so that they can go into a survival situation and they know 
whether you have 50 people, 100 people, 150 people, everybody is there. You are like a front line military battalion tip of the spear. You have Marshall. a sense of camaraderie that pulls everyone together. Yes. Marshall, what happens if in the event a person is in a situation where they can't pull together um uh, as you mentioned, like military service, first responders, uh, you know, police or, or any of that. What if they're just on their own? Do you cover any of that um, in, in the book? I cover it in so or, or, much. Or maybe, maybe you have that, that um, advice that you could give if it's not in the book. I, I, I'm not sure right. what you're doing. Well, my advice for you is whether you're alone or with your other people, the first thing you have to do is you have to have a survival state of mind. You have to start thinking like a survivor. It doesn't matter, you know, because every survivor is a majority of one. When you're comrades, when you have camaraderie and you're pulling together with others. So now, what's that one person? Well, I wrote this book because doing one of these communities is a multi-million dollar project. But I'm going to tell you, the money's on the sidelines. People are looking for something like this. And so I wrote the book as a business plan for the common man, that if you're a dreamer, you don't know where in the hell you find the money, you don't know where in the heck you're going to find the people, but if it's your dream to build a win-win, I give you the plan. I give you a plan for the price of a book that you would have to spend five years and tens of thousands of dollars to develop on your own. But the question is, is, as the old saying goes, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Correct. And Marshall, just a, on, on a quick note here, are you still in communication with Ed Dames? Uh, not not now. Um, I haven't seen Ed since 2015. What I will tell you oh my. is in the book, um, I acknowledge Ed, I, the, uh, the concept of how these communities are constructed, because I use concrete domes. And uh, and also I developed uh, a, a type of underground farming I call ecotech. And this is designed for producing a complete diet of food, three meals a day, fresh food. And I don't care what's going on. I don't care if you got volcanoes going off. I don't care. Earthquake doesn't matter. This facility takes a licking, keeps on ticking, keeps producing. Now, the interesting thing was... Uh, what I write in the introduction of the book was I, I was told, you know, God told me I would write this book when I was 16 years old and told me what my life was going to be like. And sure enough, it all came to pass. And there was a, a moment, a catalyst moment that launched me on this. And I, uh, a friend, a mutual friend, her name's Gloria and a uh, very nice gal, supporter of my site. And she was able to find someone to sponsor me to take the remote viewing class with Ed Dames. Oh, okay. And and I did. And I found, actually, I'm very good at it. All right? I have a good gift for it. Um, the And the and when you're doing the exercises, uh, let me just kind of give a quick overview of remote viewing versus channeling. And when you're remote viewing, you're, you are literally connecting with the Akashic record. It's very safe. When you are channeling, you're actually talking to an ethereal entity or or God. You're talking to somebody on the other side of the veil. And it could be good or they could be bad. And that's the, the thing. You don't know unless you've been well-trained. So start with remote viewing. 
because you tap into the Akashic Record and you can see things into the future with a great deal of clarity, IMAX clarity. You see it, you smell it, you can feel it, you can it's just amazing, all five senses. And it was the last class or the last day, and it was the last exercise. And what Ed does is he'll have something in his briefcase, and he says, okay, remote view, six, seven, slash, stroke, five, two, three, whatever. Well, that's just something he's written on a piece of paper. And the interesting thing about remote viewing is that's what you're going to say once he tells you that. I don't understand the exact mechanism, how I can see inside his briefcase, but I did. And so this is, you're going through this and everybody's really focusing on survival. They want to know where they can be because that's what they, the biggest use for remote viewing. And in the last session, when he was finished, he said, okay, everybody, here's what you remote viewed. You remote viewed where you are going to be when the kill shot happens, which is his causality, his catastrophic event. Right. Well, I, my, I saw myself in a win-win, exactly the way I describe them in the book. And I was there with other people, and I was there with a significant other, and I could hear, sense, smell, everything. I could see the structure, how it was built into the side of a hill, and that was it. I had kind of a blueprint, and I didn't really know where to go with it after that. And that was when I just figured, well, get boots on the ground, just start looking at stuff. That's how you do it. You just look at stuff. So I started flying all over the country, you know, up to Minnesota, Montana, Washington, Arkansas, you name it, all over the place, looking at properties and learning what I learned and learning what kind of properties are best and which are not and uh, and how to find them. And so that became a very useful thing for me. And all of that translated, distilled down into the book. Very nice. I had no idea you mentioned our boy, Ed Dames. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, Ed's got it. I like Ed. Ed's cool. Uh, it was an interesting class. I had just finished writing Being in It for the Species. And uh, I went up to Ed and I gave him a signed copy. And uh, he says, oh, yeah. He says, you know, I know you. I hear your name all the time. <laughs> and uh, I said, you know, I, I still have your kill shot video from 2004. And I said, to be honest, in 2004, you were way ahead of me. And you nailed it in general terms. You nailed it. And he looked at me and says, I don't like hearing that. And we both knew why, because we knew where it led. And uh, interesting thing, there was a, he, they shot a live video during that class. And in one of his tapes, you'll see me in a cameo with him at the end, where I'm the only guy in the class that turned towards him, because I just wanted to hear what he was saying. And um, he faced me, and uh, it was very interesting. It's in one of the videos. But Ed has really got it right. Now, what he's talking about is in his kill shot is what's called a solar sprite or cosmic lightning. And this is where, you know, like the, the spark, you know, spark plug just arcs. Or have you ever walked across, if you live at a place like Houston, where it's really humid, you walk across nylon and you touch a, uh, a metal doorknob, boom, you know, you're going to get a heck of a shock. And uh, a solar sprite is, the thing that is, is that the lightning goes from the ground up. Instead of it going from from up to down, it goes from down to up. And so, uh, a solar sprite emanates from the surface of the sun, reaches out. 
Is there anything that looks like it was hit by a solar sprite in our system? Yes. Look at planet Mars, Val Marineris. It's the largest canyon system in our solar system, and that's probably what a solar sprite looks like when it hits. I think it'd be hard to say Val Marineris was created by water erosion, so like the Grand Canyon. So I saw all of this, and what he's talking about is, and in his 2004 film, he doesn't talk so much about it now, but what he said was his remote viewers were seeing that the kill shot happens when a massive planet passes between Earth and Venus. And what we have is absolute darkness, absolute darkness like we've never seen before. It'll be terrifying. And then it'll move off. Now, this is the time when here we are with Earth is going to be, you know, look at this alignment. You got the sun, Venus, this object, and Earth. All right. And so that's when he says the kill shot is going to happen. And if you're on the side of the planet, when the kill shot hits, you are in some deep kimchi. You're in a real it, world of hurt. Is this kill shot the, the solar flare that you're speaking of? Well, yeah, he caught, well, you could call, it's not a solar flare. It is solar a sp- Sprite, you said, right? I'm it's sorry. It's a Sprite, right. Okay. It is a Sprite. And so the Sprite is, it's, it's literally a lightning bolt, comes right off the sun, goes across space and smacks into a planet. Gee, I never, I, I, you know, I'm a huge space fan. I, I love stuff that has to do with outer space. I'm always watching programs on the universe, etc. cetera. I, I got to say, I never heard of this before. Well, yeah, it's not well discussed a lot. And, uh, but solar sprites are, uh, you know, we have sprites here on Earth as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, and usually those actually, the sprites are the. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, th- these have been recently discovered in the last few years. That's right. Yeah, I saw. Uh, are you talking about the 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 solar sprites or the sprites on Earth? Because I've seen on the Earth. ones. Yeah, the ones on Earth have only been discovered within what ten, fifteen years, maybe. Um, yeah. Those are the, those are the ones that are above the clouds, uh, right. far yeah, far above the actual storm itself. That right. part I know, but I've never I've never heard about this uh, this solar sprite. I, I have to look that up. Yeah, look into it because that's what Ed is talking about as a solar sprite. And uh, if we get smacked with one of those, it that is going to be utterly brutal. That's another win. Yes. And so that is what Ed is talking about. Is a solar sprite. Sounds much like a, a gamma ray hit. Um, or well, similar. You're gonna, not really, because gamma ray is radiation. Okay, and gamma is deadly, absolutely deadly. Uh, you know, in the in in an all hazards facility, I, I use overcover. I use a combination of clay certified clean fill dirt and basalt aggregate for a shield against. Solar flare, CMEs, that kind of stuff. But for a solar sprite, you know, I don't care what you've done. It, you know, it, it, if you're ground zero, you're not going to know it. You'll be atomized before you've ever figured it out. So in a sense, it's just as deadly per se as, as a gamma ray. Every bit and a lot more. Oh, good. <laughs> Some, how does that get Hey, now you got something to worry about tonight, right? <laughs> Very true. Like I don't have enough problems. Thanks, a Marshall. A lot of problems tonight. <laughs> you know, sheep counters are us. 
mind. And by the way, you mentioned Mars, and I'm curious now if you saw the Mars rover that obtained those extremely high-resolution photographs. Well... NASA's Curiosity I, rover. Yeah, they're... Usually, if it's something, if NASA releases it, it's not, you know, it, it, you're not going to have a dead-on hit, uh, or it'll be off to the side, or the resolution's reduced. I just don't bother with those things too much. I think it's more interesting just to see what's happening on Earth. That's where my focus is. <laughs> That's where, you know, whatever is going to happen on Mars ain't going to kill us. It's what's happening here. Of course. And... uh so it's and with what's happening on the planet right now, this is uh, it's our focus. We are really our focus is off. I mean, insects are dying. Uh, People we're are losing dying. Insect species, <laughs> bees, flying insects are going. Uh, we are losing really important uh, species. Uh, we have a huge, massive extinction that's going on right now. And it's partly our own making and partly that of our planet and sun interacting with the incoming Planet X system. And, uh, you know, if you go to my site, uh, Yowza, Y-O-W-U-S-A, I just put up a new article today, um, and it's called The Coronavirus Planet X Connection. And there is a picture in there that when I saw it, it took my breath away. I've been looking at Planet X observation photos for a long time. Long time. This one, when I just, I was like, oh my God. It's at altitude. You can see not one, not two, but three objects. And the chemtrailing is hideous. Absolutely hideous. I think it's one of the most amazing Planet X observation photos I've ever seen. And I have that photograph now up in the chat room for those that are curious. Just let that screen load. And yes, I'm looking at this photograph and I see the sun and I see all sorts of chemtrails. Yeah. I mean, it's just that is. And look how persistent they are. You know, they're just hanging up there, crossing the entire horizon. You know, regular, when the jets are doing regular contrails, they kind of follow behind the jet. You know, this ain't following the jet. This is just staying there. And uh, this just gives you an idea of how dirty and filthy with all the chemtrailing, everything, excuse me, that they're doing. And people are reporting to me that the increase in the amount of chemtrail spraying right now is like nothing anyone has ever, excuse me, nothing anyone has ever seen. Marshall, how recent is this photograph, by the way? Uh, it was put up this morning. This photograph was just was taken this morning? Uh, it was put up this morning. It was taken probably within the last couple of days. Oh, okay. And uh, it was posted on my Facebook page. And so if you go into my article, uh, I actually do a, beta, a gamma analysis for it. So you can see if it's a natural object. <clears throat> there are three objects in there, one at the 8 o'clock, uh, one at around the 1230, and one at the 1. And uh, these, they are... Each of the three, they are natural objects, and they completely stand up under gamma analysis. And what are they? These are three planets from the Planet X system behind the sun, caught at altitude. Why, why haven't any satellites reported Planet X? They're reporting Planet X all the time. They're just not reporting it to you and me. And why is that? Because they don't want us to know about this 
Otherwise, if if they come out and they were to say the government comes out and puts out the same picture, and they're saying, guess what? You know, we got a planet coming. People are going to quit their jobs and they're going to start digging bunkers in the background. It'll wait, be. Wait, wait, like- I, I, I'm confused. Hang on a second. If they see a planet, or you said if they know that there's a planet out there and it's going to do it. Right. If they know, if they're told Planet X is coming and it's going to be painful. Coming where? Towards us. It's going to affect us. It's not going to hit us. It'll pass through the system. Okay. And um, it'll just pass through the system. It's going to cause an awful lot of damage. But the point here is that the governments are, the governments have been suppressing this from the very beginning. Now, I can remember, I'm old enough. When I was in high school, everybody was talking about Planet X. Every In my science class, everyone was excited about that we lived in a binary star system and that Nemesis, the smaller sister sun, was somewhere out there around the Oort cloud or something. And it was a beautiful, vibrant, fantastic Planet X discussion. And then, boom, they dropped the hammer on it. Okay. And after that, uh, this was a taboo topic. And astronomers who have worked on it and tried to report it have been assassinated. Okay, this happens no differently than, you know, doctors who are, you know, natural, you know, natural doctors and trying to heal people naturally. They're suiciding themselves because they're not on the pharma bandwagon. You know how they suicide themselves. You know, first they stab themselves in the back 27,000 times and throw themselves off a 30-foot building. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's how they commit suicide. So it's always (laughs) these terrible deaths. So we've had astronomers that are being uh, assassinated. There's a huge amount of suppression on this. And, uh, you know, the, the classic thing is, well, they don't want people to panic. I don't buy that. What's really all this is about is the people who run the planet, the people at the top of the food chain, they know these freaking rocks are out there and they're coming. And they also know whoever is running the show when they get here is going to be running the show after they're gone. And right now, it's political musical chairs is to see which power base will be running the planet when this really comes in. And it's a big problem. So is it going to be is it going to be the nationalists? Okay, the patriots or is it going to be the globalists? So what you're saying ultimately is that these planet X's are inhabited by alien beings other than our, ourselves and that they are coming to this planet or that the planet is going to crash into us. I'm, I'm sorry. I'm a little confused. Going, nothing's going to crash into us except, you know, we'll have asteroids, meteorites. Okay? Right. But as Not far as planet, planet X Anybody that is tells concerned. you planet X is going to crash into us is either disinformation operative or they're as stupid as a sack of hammers. The only reason I brought that is I'm just trying to understand the theory here. And I'm saying this only because I used to volunteer at an observatory. Right. And I I mean, I, I only knew what the normal was with the gigantic telescope when we pointed it at a planet. So right. I've never I've never seen anything like this Planet X before. So I'm curious as to what it's going to do? Well, it's in a long period elliptical orbit. It's in a comet-like orbit. It doesn't orbit 
clockwise or counterclockwise. It has a clockwise orbit. Now, there are, you want to look into Carlos Munoz Farada. He was the first uh, astronomer to announce it in 1940. And at that time, he said that there was what was he called a black star, which is now known as a brown dwarf, and that it had a large object, uh, a large planet in orbit around it, several times the size of Earth. And so that is what he said was coming. And he predicted that. Now, Zachariah Sitchin did the analysis of the Sumerian texts, says the same thing, comet-like orbit coming up from southern skies, 3,600 years. All right. So, and then you have a, you had a, an astronomer who was the Naval Observatory in Washington, D.C., and he published a brilliant paper on Planet X. He was assassinated for it after making observations. So the reason why you never heard anything is that you're not supposed to hear anything. You're making an assumption that there's honesty in science. Wakey, wakey, man. It's about the, it's about the bucks, baby. No bucks, no Buck Rogers. And if they're saying, we ain't going to talk about it, you ain't going to know about it. Period. You know that. Who, me, myself? I, I honestly, I, I don't because I, I've, I've never, um, I mean, I've heard about this, uh, this theory of planet X, but I gotta be honest, I never really thoroughly dove into the idea or, or information about it. I never studied it. So that's why I'm curious as to what it is. And I, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to understand your, your, your take on it and what it's all about. That, that's what I'm trying to get. Well, my take on it started with, if you're going to find that there's a large body coming into your system, how are you going to look for it? You tell me. By telescope, I would imagine, or by satellite. Now, if you fail to observe an object, what does that prove? Uh, that it's not there? No. You fail to observe the object. That's all you failed to do. You're the oh, one in other who words, something and nothing. The failure to observe an object means only one thing. You have failed to observe the object. Okay? So whatever reason it is. Now, if you want to see this stuff, it's behind the sun. And it is difficult to see. I have seen Planet X with my own eyes, naked eye observation, just at dusk, just before the sun slipped behind the horizon on September 9th, 2018, with another observer. And we saw exactly the same thing. All right. With the naked but, eye? With naked eye. I saw the object at approximately the 1230 above the sun. You see in this picture, you see that object at the very top? Unfortunately, I don't have the picture in front of me. I think, what are you on, YouTube or, or is this on Skype? Uh, well, I'm on, with you guys, I'm on Skype, but uh, I sent the picture. It'll be in your chat room. Uh, or if you're actually on my, you go to my website, if you go to yowusa.com, you'll see it. Yeah, it's right there. If you go to yowusa.com, one of the very first articles that's up there, if you click the link, you can actually see the photograph. Uh, pardon me, guys. I'm not, I'm not exactly computer savvy. Bear with me. I'm sorry. Don't worry. But go ahead. Go, yeah, go ahead, fine. Marshall. You were saying. So now if you get there and you look, you're going to see three objects. The one that's dead center between the other two is the one that I saw, except it was much closer to the sun. When I saw it, what's interesting about this is that these objects that are around the sun, uh, first off, you can see you have chemtrails and cloud cover in front of them. That's not a flare. Okay. Um, and 
The one in the lower left-hand corner, I was really surprised on gamma. It held up down to 0.01. But let me tell you how we discovered all of this. This really happened in, started for me in the 90s. And I had a travel business in Russia. And every December, I'd fly over, come back in January, because that's when I worked on getting all my tours set up for the season. And over a period of eight winters, I flew over in December and came back. Now, the flight over was always at night. The flight back was always during the day. The first time I came back, it was January 2003. And I'll never forget, I grew up in Arizona. So snow to me, blue blue ice in particular was something you got at 7-Eleven. You know, you put it in a cup with some syrup. Uh, I'm sitting here, about 35,000 feet, and I'm seeing horizon to horizon. And yes, the world is not flat. It's not flat. Oh, oh my God. It's not flat. It's not flat. I'm sorry. And um, and somebody said, well, you know, the airline windows are designed to make it look that way. And I'm going, <laughs> yeah, guess what? The, the first time I saw the North Pole from an airplane, it was an, it was an Aeroflot Eel 62 that was made in 1963. If, you, if the Soviets were part of that conspiracy, I'd love to know. So, oh you know, the thing was, I, I, I was looking and it was stunning. It was beautiful, white, endless, endless, just stunning. And then as the years passed, it deteriorated. And it wasn't like you have one year good, one year bad. It was steady deterioration until my last trip in 98, I looked at the Arctic, and it looked like the busted windshield of a car in a wrecking yard. And that was when I said to myself, you know what? I believe my lying eyes. I don't care what the spin meisters are saying, that there's no such thing as global warming. I see it. Now I got to understand it. So I got together with a couple of friends where the three of us were in Mensa, and uh, which means you, you have a genius IQ and you're socially handicapped. And <laughs> we call those people autistic. <laughs> <laughs> autistic people. You know what? We need autistic people. We sure do. And uh, they're, they're creatives, brilliant creatives. We get rid of autistics. We're going to lose a lot of innovation. But um, the thing was that I'm trying to understand what's causing this. And so we were going, the, the first question was, all right, it's happening on Earth. We've documented that. But what's the causality? Is it man-made? Is that the causality? Partially, yes. But are there other, but it didn't explain it. It was like, it explained part of it, but it didn't, it was like one slice of the pie, but the rest of the pie wasn't explained. And that was solar. So we figure, okay, if it's solar, then it would be any planet with an atmosphere, observable atmosphere in our solar system if it's solar-driven, will be perturbed as Earth is, atmospherically. And when we started looking out through the solar system, everything was just totally perturbed. We had seen where on the last time Pluto came around the sun, it increased. Its temperature always increases when it whips around going back into aphelion. But this time, it was 10 times more than ever before seen. Mars had a period of warming that was so extreme. If it had happened here on Earth, we would now be extinct as a species. Uh, and I don't care. You just go all the way. And even the planets where the atmosphere is just useless, like Venus, you're still seeing X-ray, uh, X-rays coming out, radio trend frequencies. 
that are sparking up all kinds of other anomalies. And so we looked at the whole, all of the planets in the solar system and everything is responding to the sun. So then our next question is, if everything is responding to the sun, is the sun going through a natural cycle or is the sun interacting with a perturber? We isolated it and determined that the sun was not following, based on the 300 some odd years of recorded history, that the sun was not in an, um, an uh, in a strange period, okay, that it wasn't or going through some cycle. So then we're going, all right, if that's the case, then there's a perturber. The sun is interacting with another object coming into the system. And that was what led us on the path to finding Planet X, which is the very same path that started with the discovery of Uranus. When Uranus was discovered, it was the first planet discovered with the telescope, as you know. And after it was observed, they noticed that it had perturbations in its orbit. And the perturbations of Uranus led directly to the discovery of Neptune. And so when Galt uh, made the calculations. He sent them off to the observatory in Berlin and boom, zip. He just pow, nailed it right there and then. And so Neptune was discovered mathematically. But then they observed Neptune and Neptune has perturbations in its orbit. It zigs out. It's being pulled by a massive object. And so then the Europeans were on the quest for Neptune's perturber. Now, after they went through that and they couldn't find it, there was a guy, Percival Lowell, a wealthy Bostonian who didn't have to kiss anybody's butt for funding. He the OG. Yep. Okay. And he moved to Flagstaff and set up the Lowell Observatory. Now, he set up the Lowell Observatory for very specific reason. He wanted to find Neptune's perturber that the Europeans were looking for. And he actually imaged Pluto and didn't realize it, thought it was an asteroid or another object. And he did that in, uh, you know, probably about 10, about, I think it was 10 years before Tombaugh of the same observatory who perpetuated the same mission of finding Neptune's perturber found Pluto. Now, when they discovered Pluto, they felt that they had Neptune's perturber and Planet X was solved. At that time, the term Planet X was actually coined in about 1905 by Percival Lowell as defining an object in space that you know it is there by means of its interactions with known and observable objects. By the way, I'm glad you mentioned him because he still gets no play whenever Planet X is brought up in any conversation. Oh, or they just attack him and Tombaugh. Right. You know, so they go after him and they attack him viciously and bitterly. They want to humiliate him. They call him all kinds of names. Uh, but Tombaugh discovered Pluto. So that was when they figured, okay, we got Planet X. But it wasn't because once they found Pluto's moon, Sharon, they understood that Pluto is only 60% the mass of our moon which is not going to be big enough to perturb Neptune. And so the search was the search was on again for Neptune's perturber, which was discovered in 1940 by Carlos Munoz Ferrada. So that's the process of discovery that came out. Amazing. And Marshall, we were talking about objects possibly hitting Earth. And of course, you've talked about Apophis 
many, many times, and we've talked about that here on the show. Scientists say it's not going to hit the Earth in 2029. They have said nay. What's your opinion? Will it even get close to Earth? I have two concerns with Apophis. I'm really not concerned that it'll strike because as you know, as you guys know, the, the longer objects are observed, the less chance that there is of an impact event. But uh, the two things I do concern with that is, one, it would pass close enough to graze the atmosphere would be absolutely catastrophic. It would be absolutely catastrophic if it just grazes the atmosphere. Uh, the other thing that concerns me equally is it's a big mother, big rock. And so say right. hello to my little friends. <laughs> They're yes. gonna, it's going to be dragging all kinds of crud with it. That stuff will wind up getting pulled into our gravity well. And so maybe it doesn't hit us, but we get peppered by a lot of little friends. Yes, uh, for sure. You're, you're talking about NEOs near Earth objects. That's right. For sure. Anything that's anything with an Earth crossing orbit. So, uh, and we're seeing, guys, uh, if you check my site, signs, articles, uh, look, everybody thinks, I, I was just watching a TED talk and the guy think, well, if you're stupid, you, you believed in the Mayan prophecy. And I wanted to just say, no, you're the stupid. <laughs> the stupid. I okay. like that. <laughs> you're the stupid. Stupizza. Stupizza. Stupizza bullshoy. And, uh, because we are, uh, what's, what's coming our way is observable. We're seeing it. You're seeing it in images like this. But I will tell you, I could have this picture. I could have a stack 10 feet tall, printed thick, every sheet, a different photograph. And you're not going to, you're just not going to believe it. Because someone who's not trained to science or thinks in terms of science, you got to see it with your own eyes before you really get it, before you internalize it, before you gut sink it, you got to see it with your own eyes. Now, I didn't. I've always been a science guy. And so for me, what the acid test for Planet X was, we knew that NASA was going to be putting up a solar probe, Ulysses which is unique because it's in a polar orbit instead of an equatorial orbit. So it's going over to North Pole and under the South Pole and back again. That's its orbit. Well, it went out there and it did the sun. And NASA released the information. You know, I have to admit, NASA, billions of dollars. And always, the minute they get to the point of the aha moment where it's the really great information that comes in, Things always break. You ever notice that? You know, they the do. minute it gets good, they break it. But they did have a picture that showed that the sun is interacting very clearly with an object approaching at about a 30 degree inclined orbit to the ecliptic from the southern skies. And when I saw that in 2006, game over. I knew it was there. I didn't have so, to think about it. So what's going to happen? What's going to happen? Well, right now we're waiting for it to reach its point of perihelion closest to the sun. When it does, it's going to be up and to the right of the sun. At that point, when it reaches perihelion, everyone's going to know. Uh, what I'm going to be looking for is right now, when you look at all the objects, uh, you have a full face. You're seeing daylight side. So that means they're on the opposite side of the sun. What I'm looking for is when they're up and to the right of the sun, and all of a sudden you start to see a terminator. 
All right. The Terminator is like, think of the moon, you know, the phases of the moon. And you go from a full moon and then it slices and slices, takes thinner and thinner slices. Well, that slice between the daylight and the night side, that's called the Terminator. So once we start seeing a Terminator, we know it's reached its point of perihelion closest to the sun. And then it's going to be arcing over on our side of the system because it's moving on two axes. It's moving in a 3,600-year orbit on one axis from the southern skies to the northern skies, comet-like orbit. But then on its other axis, it's orbiting around the sun in a matching orbit with us. And it's a little bit faster. We're 365 days. It's about 360 days. So it's just a matter of time before we creep up on each other and that's when it happens. Now, uh, what's going to happen next is I'm thinking if we're seeing three objects here, then Nemesis is either on the ecliptic or above it, which means things are going to start accelerating because if you understand the physics, you know that in an orbit like this, when it comes to the point where it's going to whip around, this long, elongated 3,600-year orbit, and when it gets to the top, it whips very violently, very quickly, speeds up, and then it passes through our system. It'll pass. We will watch it actually pass over our heads, and then it is going to go down between the orbits of Mars and Jupiter, heading back into the southern skies. When we see it from the ecliptic, from, from perihelion to the ecliptic is what we have always called the death zone. This is when the interaction between Nemesis and our sun is going to be greatest and we have problems. But is when Nemesis reaches the ecliptic that that's when we really run the risk of these really severe events, which would include the Ed Dames cosmic sprite and also a pole shift. I see. Very interesting, Marshall. And on a side note, I just wanted to go back to the moon really quickly here and get your thoughts and opinions on NASA uh, laying out dates to send astronauts back to the moon, yet they keep pushing back the dates all the time. We were supposed to go this year, and now it's delayed to uh, 2024 now, apparently. Yeah, they're becoming unfashionably late. <laughs> They really are. I always thought, I always thought that was a was a result of funding. Well, because NASA NASA was cut had its funding cut in two thousand eight when uh, Hussein Obama took office, and because uh, they were they were planning to go the, to they wanted to go to Mars within eight to ten years, and then right. they were they were uh, their budget was cut by the uh, Obama administration, and only recently I understand with the Trump administration has NASA been refunded, so to speak. Not only that, he did the Space Force. God bless our president. He did the space. He did the Space Force, and he funded NASA. He launched us for Mars. And the one thing that he did, and nobody knows about this. I've reported it, but nobody knows because the the globalists are so good at using the media to black out anything he's done positive. He does something really positive or good, there's going to be bad news that dominates the cycle so you don't hear about it. And one of the things that Obama did that really pissed me off was the EMP commission. All right. Now, this was about 2000 and Congress funded the EMP commission. Now, we know 
the the funding we know the results of that have you, you guys ever heard of the book one second after right. by fortune yep okay it's based on that and what they found the mp said if we have we get hit with a major event 9 out of 10 americans are going to die easy yeah and people were and keep in mind when fortune wrote his book Newt Gingrich wrote the foreword to it. All right. So, I mean, it wasn't the who's who were, were, they were on top of this. And so the EMP commission was saying, look, our national power grid is completely unprotected. By the way, okay. Marshall, I just want to quickly correct myself when I said 2024. It's, NASA actually wants to go back in 2028. So they're well, pushing it back further. Good God. They're pushing it back further, but it's, I, you know, I see that. But on the other hand, I see the fact that Mars is now, Mars is declared. But think about it. You know, let's go back to when NASA was going to fund this and they want to go to the moon. Right. In 2008, right? NASA was the only game. They were really the only game. Back then you had Ariane, a couple of other players. I mean, there's like seven or eight companies. Yeah, there's a bit. There's a bunch of them. There's a bunch of them. That's the reason why with my book, Win-Win, okay, Win-Win Survival Communities, I'm saying you want to be colonization, you want to go to space, because when guys like Boeing are going to start building kilometer-long colony ships, they're going to need paying people. They're going to need passengers. And that's what I'm saying. You're going to survive so you can become passengers and go colonize the stars. And uh, so it works really well. There's only one problem with that. What's that? It's uh, scientifically impossible to travel at the light, the speed of light, and to reach any of these um, these new planets they've been finding in the Goldilocks uh, zone. Uh, it, it, we there's just no way a, a human could survive traveling such a distance. I mean, unless I, I mean, unless they terraform Mars, which would take decades, if not centuries, to to create an atmosphere, um, that's really the only planet I think we could go to within a six-month period. Otherwise, we couldn't go to anything else outside our solar system. Well, I think <laughs> we've got technology that can do very amazing things. One of the things I think about the Space Force that allows them to start bringing some of this stuff out and disclosing it and uh, they may have just very well found a way to get around Einstein's uh, little thorny problem there. And, uh, you know, look at it this way. Go back to 1900s when automobiles first came out. They do 25 miles an hour down the road, and people wore goggles and heavy hat. They were prepared 25 miles an hour. I mean, that's oh, it. Yeah. Today, I, I, 25 miles an hour. That's a kid on a Vespa with, with, with flip-flops <laughs> and a tank top. And no, I get that. Heavy goggles. And, you know, I mean, they're getting ready to go to the moon. So, you know, technology evolves, guys. Just have an open mind. No no doubt. And I, I, I agree with you. However, I mean, based on what I've read and, and, and programs I watched on, on – on, uh, I mean, I, I'm no expert when it comes to traveling at light speed, but it, from what I've, I've read and what I've seen, it's just, there's just no possible way a human or even the possibility of a, of a material spacecraft could travel at such a high speed where a human, a, a 
a uh, what am I trying to say? A biological creature would be able to survive. And and as I said, our nearest um, our nearest galaxy is Andromeda, and that's something like oh I don't know a uh, hundred thousand light years away. That's pretty far. Um, I just don't see how it could at all be possible for you know based on what I've read and and what I've seen on on space programs, uh, uh, television programs. I don't see how it could be possible how we could travel a hundred thousand light years because light, you know, light takes such a long time to get to these um, these other stars and galaxies that uh, we we just couldn't survive the the trip. And I get what you're saying before about the um, you know when we first came up with automobiles in the early 1900s uh, and how people were you know prepared for bugs in the eyes with goggles and helmets so on and so forth. But this is a this is a, a much bigger leap in travel. Well, it would be. And so you either leap or you go around. Like the <laughs> Marines say, improvise and adapt, right? And uh, improvise, overcome, and adapt. And, and so I think it goes that way. I was into the Marines. Uh, sorry <laughs> out there for the hoorah crowd. And, uh, but we have, a, we have an ability to leapfrog. Let me give you an example. Um, for the longest time, when humanity first started sailing the seas out of the Mediterranean, and the ships of the day, uh, their method of navigation, the only thing they could do was to follow the coastlines. And so that made it incredibly long journeys, and it restricted their movement. And that's the way it was for centuries until the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians not only built the most advanced ships of the day, but they were the first ones to figure out how to navigate by the stars. And consequently, the Phoenicians, while everybody else was only going a few hundred nautical miles, the Phoenicians were able to straight sail straight through the middle of the Mediterranean, right out to Pastor Altar, and their trade routes went as far south as South America, I mean, excuse me, uh, the uh, Cape Horn to the south in South Africa, and as far north as Great Britain, where they were hauling back tin during the end of the Bronze Age. And so their ability to navigate by the stars leapfrogged the current technology of the day. And I'm sure what they did, everybody was going, well, you can't do that, but they're doing it. You can't do it, but they're doing it. And so what I'm saying is right now, yeah, if we're doing that, if we're hugging the coastline, you're absolutely right. But what if we find a way to navigate like the Phoenicians did? We change the matrix. We end run the problem and we navigate by the stars as opposed to the coastlines. So this is human in intervention, you know, invention. This is what we do. And so in the future, you know, will we exceed the speed of light? I, you know, I have the same reservations that you do, but on the other hand, if history has shown us one thing, you know, we can pull some pretty wicked stuff out of our tuckus when we want to. Hey, yeah. It certainly no seems doubt. that way. No, no doubt. Yeah. So, I mean, getting back to this, what we have right now is, is Planet X, Nemesis, the dark star, is interacting with our sun. Now, you can go track this down. You want to look at solar luminance, and you can see solar luminance is on the rise. The sun is getting brighter. Infinitesimally small amounts, but it doesn't take that much to make a difference. And so what we have is the sun 
is interacting with this object. It is growing more luminescent. It is more brighter. That is having an impact on us. Now, if you look at this and you're going, oh, my God, look at those chemtrails. Look at that. We're breathing that crud. Oh, my God. And I look at these chemtrails that make me sick to my stomach. But what are they really doing? The whole purpose of chemtrailing is to reflect photons of light back into space because the sun is sending us more photons of light with the attendant radiation, which is going into the earth. And this is causing the earth to respond. So the magma in our core, it's not, there's not more of it or it's not getting hotter. But what's happening is what we're finding is it's moving a lot faster. And so there's much more movement, which is causing these plate instabilities that we're seeing, such as what we're tracking around the Caribbean plate, which we believe is a relief valve for the West Coast of the United States. Basically, if you see Haiti take a hit and you're in Los Angeles, maybe it's a good time to go inland a couple hundred miles and see how it works out. I agree. That's how I feel. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, it's coming in. It's perturbing us. It's a witch's brew of things that we're going to have to deal with. We're going to have a lot of solar storm activity. Uh, this is, to me, the number one, uh, the number one threat in an all hazards community. Like I talk about in my book, Win Win Survival Communities. It's, uh, the radiation is the number one thing. So, for example, in, all my facilities, the all hazards facilities are going to be under several feet of raw earth, clay, basalt aggregate, and topsoil. And so there is plenty of coverage from the radiation, but also from the impacts, because I see we're going to have uh, very deadly meteorite showers. That's going to come. Uh, we're also going to have... Uh, a bear in mind, this is a brown dwarf, so it's surrounded by a huge ball of uh, iron oxide. So we're going to pass through that, uh, and we're going to have iron all over the place. If you go back to the 10 plagues of Exodus, the first one is the rivers turn red. Well, that's the iron, baby. You know, go to a brickyard, ask them how they make those beautiful red bricks. They say, we just take ugly old clay and put in iron. We, you know, bake it up. Boom. All right. So the iron is what turns turns it red, just like it creates rust. All right. And you have that. We're going to have those problems. What we're really going to have is we're going to have, if you look at the 10 plagues of Exodus and you reorder it in scientific order out of allegorical order, it clicks together scientifically like Legos, because Exodus was not about a hard-hearted pharaoh. That's a simple explanation for, for the Bible, but it was a global event. How do we know Exodus was a global event? Because what we're seeing today is exactly the same thing they saw in the time of Moses, the locust plagues. There's huge locust plagues in Africa. What causes this? When grasshoppers start losing their food sources, their natural environment shrinks, it concentrates them. And on the hind legs of a grasshopper is a genetic hotspot. And when they get dense enough, they start beating on each other and hitting those hotspots. It triggers a metamorphosis where they become locusts. And then they go out and they eat everything. 
So instead of being a cannibalistic species like us, we eat ourselves. They're After we've eaten everything else, they're just going to eat everything else. They don't eat themselves. And so that's what happened in the time of Pharaoh and Moses was the locust. And we're seeing the exact same things being reported in Africa today. So the 10 plagues is already with us. And it's going to get worse before it gets better. And Marshall, let me bring it back to technology for a moment here. As all of us have been witnessing the sort of reaction the public has been sort of taken now. Mm -hmm. You see all the fighting going on. You see people being violent with one another. Can you just imagine if technology actually failed completely and we lost electricity for uh, months? You already know the outcome of that. Well, you know, that was interesting you bring that up. That's an excellent point because this was the same thing the problem EMP commission had a problem with. An EMP See, during strike, the Obama yeah. years, during the Obama years, Obama did everything he could to kill the EMP commission and completely take it out. He wanted to kill it because it was against his narrative. All right. Trump came in. Nobody knows this. This is probably going to shock you. Trump signed an executive order saying we got to protect the grid, but it's going to take five years to do it. I didn't even know that. That's right. Interesting. Of course not, because it's never advertised uh, or advertised. It's never publicized that he does good things. Like Planet Planet X, right, Marshall? No one tells us about it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But Trump done us right. So he gave us EMP protection. He is going to have a space force. So now they can go get all this exotic stuff we got from the aliens and we can start flying it around. All right. And boom, you get Apophis that's coming. My guess is they're going to get out, put something on Apophis to nudge it in its orbit. And we don't have to worry about it hitting us. So I see positive things. I see this administration in terms of what's coming with Planet X. I'm going to tell you straight out if the globalists were running this still, and I'm talking about It has been, we have had globalist presidents. Every president after Reagan and before Trump was a globalist. So it's not a party affiliation. The Bushes were globalists, okay? They were the ones who talked about one world order. That's true. All right? And so then you had Clinton. Then you had Obama. These are all globalists. And one thing I knew about the globalists is they want us, you know, it's like, why is it? We don't know. Why is it you're not talking about it at your observatory? Because the globalists control all the purse strings and they don't want anybody to talk about it because they want to reduce the population to a quarter of a million. Agenda 21. For the globe. Amazing. Uh, Marshall, I have to ask you, you're you're not a fan of Bill Clinton. No. (laughs) He risked it all. No. Now, you know, it's like, I mean, it's like, wow. Think if he was a Republican, you know, would he be that your hero? Be first blow job in history. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. That's the right answer. That was the answer I was searching for. Very nice. Marshall, I'm glad you provided the laugh. I think we all needed that. But yes, uh, people now are starting to realize how vulnerable we actually are. I mean, can you just imagine a prolonged grid down situation, an EMP or an extreme solar storm? Can you imagine what would happen to America? Holy shit. Oh, it would be bad. You look, guys, this year, you know, remember the PG&E blackouts in California? I recall. I was in all five of them. Were you really? Yeah. 
I can tell you a PG&E blackout sucks. Okay. Oh, that's, that's right. The only were, that's right. It that's right. We talk. Sucks. Yeah. You know, because they do it when you and it's cold. Oh my God, it was so cold. It was miserable. People in our community here were dying because they couldn't get their oxygen cylinders refilled. You know, so you get this kind of crazy stuff that goes on. But I look at what's happening with this. I, you know, now in the article that I wrote is that uh, coronavirus right now is a, uh, <clears throat> I see it as a false flag. It is a real virus. It is dangerous. It was uh, invented in a laboratory. Uh, it was weaponized in China, and it was also in American laboratories as well. But it was released in China, which would be consistent with the globalists, because what they wanted to do was do something to cause a seizure in the basis of the uh, of the supply chain. You know, what have we learned? 90% of our drugs are made in China. Right. Okay. And the Chinese are actually now talking about maybe we're not going to give you so much. Blockade. Right. right. And uh, so what they did was they set it up to cause a supply chain failure that would cascade into Europe and the United States because if they destroy the economy, they feel that they have a chance to beat Trump in the election. If they hang a bad economy, economy on Trump, then they can win. And this is about control. They don't care if people die because they don't see us as people. They don't see us any differently than, you know, uh, going to a fish farm and scooping up a thousand catfish. Oh, I believe okay? you on that one. We're just a number, Marshall. We're just mullets. We're just All right? cancer and a number to these people. That's right. And so if they, you know, so... <clears throat> If the globalists, and this was something I saw back, I, I finally realized that back in about 2005, 2006, uh, two or three years of the most depressing years of my life, because I realized how much death was being organized. I realized, I understood the Agenda 21, if you want to call it that, there's other things, but the globalists just simply want to keep us in the dark. Because the last to know are the first to die. That's simple. Yeah, they're obsessed with the reset button for sure, Marshall. With what? With the reset button. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so Trump for them is, you know, he's derailed their whole plan. I mean, for them, it was real simple. Okay. They have got deep underground bases all over the world. They've got vast stockpiles of food, medicine, all kinds of stuff. What they wanted to do was to reduce the population of the earth to a quarter of a billion because maybe less than half of that will be in the industrialized nations. And that's what they're going to do because what they want to do is whoever's left, when they're totally down on their knees, they're going to say, looky what we brung you, food, medicine, clothing, construction materials. All you got to do is take the chip and sign on the line. Marshall, I just wanted to okay. quickly, quickly. And then they've enslaved mm -hmm. us. Marshall, yes. I just wanted to quickly tag on to this since we were talking about the elite knowing something way ahead of just the common folk like me and you, Marshall. I was invited to attend an event out in North Dakota by a very, very big underground bunker a company. I won't name their name, but you could easily look this up and you'll find it for yourself. I was invited to go out there and do a show. And I declined the offer. And one of the things I did learn was there was a, a crazy amount of politicians who actually have one. Of, they actually have these very luxurious bunkers from this company. 
they already have these things installed. And it made me wonder, I, I, why would these people be so interested in this? And these are pretty high-ranking political figures. I won't tell you how I was able to manage to figure that out, but I'll, I'll leave it at that for you. Well, you know, it really comes down to a world of risk. And, and, and you know, this gives me an opportunity. Thank you for mentioning this. Um, in the lead up to 2012, one of the things that was really instrumental in writing win-win was in the lead up to 2012, I did a lot of consulting. Uh, I had very wealthy people coming to me that they had heard me on, on radio and TV. And uh, they were always coming to me at the exact same thing. I, I seem to have gotten into a circle of people. Uh, I worked with little over 40 of them, about I think 41 or 42. And... They were building bunkers for a million dollars. Now, they came to me for the same thing all the time. I knew. They had put money down. They were in escrow. And they came to me for due diligence on the geographic location before they closed. And so I would do a really detailed analysis. They would get me. Uh, I'd get map coordinates, GPS, a crossroad, whatever. Something within about 25 miles of their location. And then I would analyze the area and, and everything for them. And then when I was finished, I'd rate it. But, you know, what they really wanted to hear from me, they liked the analysis. But what they really wanted to hear was, Booby, you nailed it. Go close escrow. And so I worked with these folks and I loved it. They were fabulous, fabulous, bright, intelligent, well-informed, knew to ask the right questions, get to the point. You know, a lunchbox Joe will want to talk for three hours, all right, about, you know, everything that happened since the dinosaurs. And with these people, laser focus, because they live in a world of risk, risk mitigation and management. You're taking risk, evaluating risk, mitigating risk, managing risk, but you're dealing with risk. And so when you're dealing with risk, you're dealing in thresholds. The average guy wants a smoking gun. Now, we all know you, the, the easiest way to find a smoking gun is it'll be laying next to a smoking body. But the common guy doesn't think it that far. They just want the smoking gun because it's easy because whatever they got to do hurts financially. So you want a huge, huge reason that everybody's going to get behind. So you have the impossible smoking gun. People with money don't think in such simplistic, stupid terms. To be blunt, I'm sorry. That's all right. I'm sorry. They don't think such stupid way. It's a risk. You know what they think? If I prepare for this and it happens, I have hedged myself. And if it doesn't happen, groovy, baby. Exactly. The common man is, what do you mean my disaster didn't happen? Damn it, you promised me a disaster. You better be delivering. You know, that's the common guy. Rich people is all prepared. But if it doesn't happen, yippee-ti-yay, cowboy. Okay. And I really enjoyed working with them. And all those years, I wish that the one regret that I had was that I didn't have something to offer them that was better than what they had. I didn't have a better option. That's why I wrote win-win survival communities. Because a win-win by definition is a win for the haves and a win for the have-nots. I figured out a way to get the haves and the have-nots working together to create survival communities. And for the win, for the, for the people who are successful, what are they doing? What they did to become successful in the first place, you surround yourself with good people who protect your interests. 
All right. And if you've chosen your community wisely, you are insulated, you and your family. And that's where these folks, you're totally insulated. You're surrounded by good people. And it's not where you're patron and they're peasants. You are in a community where your brothers and sisters in survival camaraderie with each other. And that's the basis of it. And that's how you protect yourself is you surround yourself with good people. You build alliances. You serve the community. This is how you survive. That's the whole point of doing it. It's not about crawling into a, into a hole in the ground <laughs> yes. and eating dead food. Because like I said earlier, you come up, you're going to be a stranger in a strange new world. And guess what? You're going to be hunter or hunted. And if you don't know what the hell you're doing, I don't care if you got a $3,000 AR-15. You're the hunted. Yeah, you're going to need much more than that. Oh, man. You're going to need some knowledge, not just yes. a gun and bullets. Yes, sir. Indeed. Absolutely. And my, and my God, Marshall, I mean, what's going on now? We seem to be having some sort of financial crisis up ahead. President Trump urged Congress just recently, here, just a couple hours ago, to work with a big, bold stimulus package. What is your take on this recent financial crisis? Fabulous. Bring it on. Uh, what we're doing right now is, first off, this crisis is all an invented crisis by the globalists. They unleashed it to destabilize the world economy so that Trump doesn't get elected. That's the, I mean, these people, there's no limits to what they'll do. Okay. Will there be an election? They, that's, you know, that's the, another question. Yeah. And so what happened was Trump is just brilliant at turning lemons into lemonade. You know, they threw him this yeah. lemon. And it started out, remember, when he said $3 billion and all of a sudden, you're cheap, you're not my baby, blah, 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 blah. they're busting his chops. All of a sudden, now we're $50 billion, right? <laughs> He's not cheap anymore. And he turned it around. What happened was Trump and the Patriots looked at this and they said, okay, let's flip it. Let's leverage this. You ever taken a judo class? Of course. First thing you learn when you're a little kid is that you can throw a guy twice your size if you can leverage his weight, right? Amen. Amen. I know and all about so that. That's what this is about. Trump is leveraging it, and they got to play this out. I mean, Trump came out in the beginning. What did he say? Look, this is all overblown. This is all overblown. That didn't go because the globalists are really nudging and nudging and nudging and nudging. They want to create this big failure crisis. So Bush, you know, I mean, excuse me. So Trump just goes, okay, fine. I'll own it. And then I'm going to make lemonade. And that's what he's doing right now. He took this lemon. He's making lemonade. But think about the long term. Think about the systems, the medical systems, the laws, everything that he's putting in place now to deal with this is going to be there when we need it the next time. And so what we're really getting is is a fabulous fabulous preparation that is going on to establish a foundation for dealing with these kind of things i think that coronavirus like the rest of the flu it gets warm it goes away all right i hope so but it will you know but the thing is too is eventually at one point or another whether it's i mean i don't know if it's the coronavirus the coronavirus or not, but at some point there is a virus that's going to come and it's going to be catastrophic. And it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when, just like it's a matter of when we're going to get it with a, with a meteorite. 
I absolutely um, agree. By the way, uh, gentlemen, I do have some audio here to play for you. Much more on that stimulus package deal. Oh, do it. Now let's play the audio. With all the airline CEOs this week, um, the airline CEOs have had conversations with the Senate and the House. As the president said, I was up with a subset of the Republican senators last night. I've discussed that with them. I think, as you know, this is worse than 9-11. For the airline industry, this is uh, they, they are almost worse than 9-11. Did you hear that? Yep, that's bad news. I did. Good Lord. All right, going to play some more. Ground to a halt. The president okay. wants to make sure that although we don't want people to travel unless it's critical, we want to maintain for critical travel the right to have domestic travel. My goodness. So this is worse than 9-11, boys and girls. Uh, Mike, your thoughts and opinions on just that short clip. Well, I mean, I heard this the other day, and let's face it. I mean, we all we all know that this has become a global issue, and that everybody is concerned. And and places like Italy are are taking a great hit, uh, as opposed to the USA, in my personal opinion. But on a financial level, uh, I mean, shutting things down. I mean, this is gonna this is gonna impact our economy worldwide, and. You know, I heard the president speak yesterday and he said that, you know, once this is over, we're going to, you know, the, the, the economy is going to bounce back and we're going to, we're going to, we're going to make things right again. But in the meantime, you got to ask yourself, is, is this the right thing to do? Are we, you know, are we going about it right by closing things down to prevent this from happening? I do have good news though, Mar Marshall, uh, Mike. Mike and Marshall, Mike. San Francisco, <laughs> San Francisco is still running strong with all the cannabis dispensaries. They are <laughs> quoted to be essential businesses that can stay open while most of the city abides by shelter in place of order. And yes, people got to have their pot. <laughs> so let me get this straight. If I'm in San Francisco, I'm going to hear somebody go, hey, sailor. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. You got to get high at this time. I mean, that's the only thing to do. <laughs> At a time of panic, I mean, it's a, it's a good it's a good idea to be high at least. I, I, I guess. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you just kind of, you know, it helps it with the, the frustration. Mood. Yeah, I mean, it, it lightens the mood. It lightens the mood. I mean, if you're going to be indoors all all this time, I mean, I'm reading all these things now and we're supposed to be sequestered for another what, till summer? So next year, from what I understand, what I heard was that it's supposed to be like a two week thing of of self quarantine, so to speak. But uh, when I heard the president speak yesterday, um, he said this it, it's a possibility this could last until the summer. Oh my. Now, what he meant by that, I don't exactly know. Did he mean the sequestering, or did he mean the uh, the episode itself? You know, this whole economic screw up you know i'm not exactly sure what he meant by that but this is frightening it's this very is really frightening, frightening. It, it is i mean we have all these new confirmed coronavirus cases in all 50 states now yep yeah, but guys let's look at the death toll you know in my article all right i want to read this this is this is from an article go ahead right, this and i go i'm quoting it. i'm quoting uh a news source everyone's familiar with now this article was written October 26, 2009, published by CNN. Okay. 
And for those of you who know, yes, in the 80s, I worked with CNN and I was a science feature producer. Today, I can't stand watching them. They make me want to puke because it's like watching the invasion of the body snatchers. Four o'clock at four o'clock in the morning, the pods open and they come out and slime everyone and they sound the same. You know? Agreed. They all wear the same glasses, too, by the way. Huh? I said they all wear the same glasses, too, for some reason. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, it's like, talk about individuality, right? I know. They all look like they're wearing a uniform uh, now. Uh-oh, someone's phone group's going uh, up there. Let me just, hold on a second. Hang up on them, Marshall. Yeah, I did. Good job. (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry. And uh, the, um, and I'm just going to power it off. So it doesn't come again, but I want to read this. Go ahead. Washington CNN. President Obama has declared a national emergency to deal with the rapid increase in illness from H1N1 influenza virus. Now, that's written in October. In the article, it further says, since the H1N1 flu pandemic began in April, Millions of people in the United States have been infected. At least 20,000 have been hospitalized and more than 1,000 have died, said Dr. Thomas Friedman, director of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. It took 1,000 people dead and 20,000 hospitalizations to get Obama off his ass to do something. So right now, we got airlines sweating. We got problems. But at this point... The last thing I saw is approximately 51 people in America have died from this, according to one source that I saw. So, <clears throat> which is substantially better, the situation's better than what happened in 2009. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. And so we're on it. <clears throat> Trump is, what he's doing is the globalists set this up for a make believe pandemic. Okay. It's bad. Yes. It's nasty. Yes, people will die. Yes, but there has to be an has to be a scale to this. It's not the 1918 flu pandemic that killed more American soldiers than all the bombs and bullets Germany ever launched. Right, and that was with a population of 1.5 billion people worldwide. Absolutely. Okay, so we have to put it in perspective. So. What we have now, Trump is doing this. He's keeping, and what he's doing is he's saying, fine. He doesn't, if Trump were to come out, he's damned if he don't, and almost damned if he does. If he doesn't do anything, they're going to lambaste him because the globalists created this mess in the first place to attack him. But if he's doing something and he's saying, okay, I'm going to treat it like a pandemic, even though it is not H1N1 or the 1918 flu, all right? But he's treating it like it is. And so the result is that the government is reorganizing right now. This is very, very effective what's going on in terms of how our government is going to handle these things. It is setting in motion very important things. For one, Trump is going to be able to get the drug manufacturing back to the United States, if we're going to go through a period where when this flyby comes in, it's not it's not biblical. Everybody wants, you know, it's really convenient. Can we end the world on Thursday? My <laughs> my credit cards don't come due until Friday, you know? And so yeah. people think that way. Look, we're going to get through this thing. He's going to do it well. 
He's going to set a lot of things in place that are going to be when we do have a real 1918, when we have a real 1918, okay, we're going to be 10 times better prepared for it than we are now. It's and just so, kind of it's kind of frightening to know that we we never had something like this lined up in the first place, and based on the 1918 uh, Spanish flu as well as SARS and the swine flu in the early part of 2000, um, I, I was very surprised. I mean, you know, we, we've we've taken attempt uh, we've taken um, moves to track satellites. Uh, uh, by satellites, I mean uh, near Earth objects like like. Um, asteroids um and meteors and you know we're we're taking it upon ourselves to track them to make sure that they don't uh hit earth and you know we're not prepared for it so why i ask why did we not ever prepare for something like this now is that the government just saying at some point we need to downsize in population because let's face it we are we are in just a hundred years the population has grown what six six billion people it has. I mean, something we, like that. Right. We have really, really grown. And, um, you know, it's interesting. <clears throat> Back in 2007, 2008, we were doing a lot of channeling research, working with gifted psychics. And uh, <clears throat> we would and we did it very scientifically. We had a three person team. We had one person that was working on cross reference questions like the lawyers would use. And uh, another one was a science advisor, but I was the one dealing with the psychics, and I was the only one that had a live mic. My other partners were texting me. <clears throat> wow, that's pretty cool. <clears throat> and we were working with three types of entities. A water here. I hope Marshall doesn't have the coronavirus. Anyway, I got the Marshall. Always, always joking, Michael. What's wrong with that? Yeah, What's your problem? Good. You know, keep the, you know, all all disaster and no play makes you know. That's right. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. But uh, we're guys. We're going to do. We're going to get through this whole thing. We're going to be better off for it. The economy's not going to tank. I agree. All right, and. My thinking right now, I'm looking at this Fakakata picture and I'm seeing three objects. Okay. <laughs> and I'm That's going, right. oh, we're in deep kimchi. We are seeing three objects for, you know, for years it was one object, then one, maybe two. Now we got three objects and they're appearing where I see them all the time. So it tells me things are going to be speeding up and I think we're going to, we're going to meet it. But the good thing for us guys is we're going to have a much better chance of getting a lot more people through this. Seriously. Yeah. I mean, I feel, all jokes aside. Yeah. I if feel the globalists were still running the world, we'll be, we'll be whittled down to a quarter of a billion because that's all they need. They only need a quarter of a billion slaves to serve them. Okay. Anything else is overhead. And uh, remember Georgia Guidestones? Sure Keep do. The population under half a billion. They don't tell you how you get there, right? And well, it's obvious. Uh, yeah. So they want to do it. With Trump, Trump is going to give us a chance to fight for our lives. That's the difference. And for those that hate him, I'm sorry that you hate him. I'm sorry you feel that way. 